You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning in connection with the sermon is from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 11. And we'll read the verses 1 through 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. It will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time, to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Our text this morning is Isaiah chapter 12, the verses 1 through 6. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of perhaps the most enjoyable, certainly one of my most enjoyable parts of this Christmas season This time around Christmas Day when we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is singing. Singing carols, singing psalms of praise, singing songs of praise, singing in response for what God has done for us. It's so enjoyable to do, whether it's singing carols like some of us did on Friday night in Douglas Park, or whether it's hearing performances and also singing along like you'll have the opportunity to do tonight in this church building, whether it's listening to a version of Handel's Messiah, it's a great time to 
rejoice through singing in the salvation that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, in the salvation that Jesus Christ came to this world to give. Indeed, as we sing those words, we're reminded that our God is a God of salvation. It's part of the very character of our God. Indeed, as our text says this this morning, the Lord is salvation. From the very beginning, since Adam and Eve disobeyed in the Garden of Eden, God has been working salvation on behalf of His people for His people. And sometimes that plan has been very clear to people. You think of the people of Israel, the people of Israel standing on the, the banks of the Red Sea when the Egyptians were drowned. God's salvation was very clear to them. But in other times, God working salvation is not so clear. Sometimes it was done through great displays of God's power and majesty. And other times it was not. Other times it was through a quiet event through some other way that no one took notice of. But always, and even now, and until the end of the age, God has been, is, and will be working salvation. God is a God of salvation. And so this work of God at all times and places demands a response from the people of God. For every different verse of God's mighty work The chorus is the song of praise by God's people. We respond to His work with our singing. This chorus swells at the end of each stage of God's redemptive history. The exodus, the conquering of Canaan, the triumph of kings, the birth of the Savior, the victory of God in Jesus Christ, the final judgment on the last day. The church of God is really the choir of God repeating this chorus until the final verse is written, and the chorus will be the last, the greatest, and the eternal response for all that the Son of God has done for us, for the completed work of salvation. And so I preached to you this morning under this theme, that the song of praise, as we read it in Isaiah 12, is the chorus for the work of the Son of David. The song of praise is the chorus for the work of the Son of David. We'll see first the content of this song in the verses 1 and 2, and second, the source of this song in verse 3, and thirdly, the exhortation to this song in verses 3, 4 through 5. So the song of praise is the chorus for the work of the Son of David. We'll see the content, the source, and the exhortation to this song. So first then, the content of this song. Well, in order to understand the content, we need to to pay special attention to the context. You can't understand the content of this song if you don't understand the context. Context, context, context. That's what it's all about. Well, we understand the context when we read the first words in our text, in that day. In that day, that's a very important marker. Those words in that day refer to the time that was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. The time of His kingdom. And this again reminds us of the prophetic perspective on events. That they're not always laid out clearly for us in chronological order. 
The prophets often give us pictures of future and even present and past events without distinguishing any different time periods. So in that day does not necessarily refer to the last day, the great day of judgment. And indeed, why should it? Why should we wait till the last day in order to give our praises to God? But it refers to the days inaugurated by Jesus Christ. It refers to the time of His kingdom, which He announced during His time on earth, and which He continues to build and govern in this time until it's completed. The real key to understanding the context of our text here is to notice what sits around it. Well, you notice at the beginning of chapter 13, we have a new start, an oracle concerning Babylon. So this song of praise is not really related closely with that. But it is very closely, however, related with chapter 11 and with the chapters before chapter 11. Chapter 11 speaks about the branch and the root of Jesse. You understand that metaphor, don't you? The the branch of Jesse, when the, the house of Jesse, of David, was cut off, then Jesus Christ came as a branch that grew from that stump. And indeed, he was the root of Jesse. It was Jesus Christ the whole time who was gathering his people together, who was working out the salvation that he would come to fulfill. Now, this branch and root of Jesse, we read in chapter 11, would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he would delight in the fear of the Lord and he would rule the world with righteousness. Of course, you realize that this person, this branch and root of Jesse, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord, whose coming we celebrate this week. So this song is a response to the coming and to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a chorus of praise which announces, which follows the announcement of his coming. And so now that we understand the context that this is really about Jesus Christ, it's a response to his work. Let's take a closer look at the content of these verses. Verse 1 introduces this song with the words, I will praise you, O Lord. That's how we know that this is a song of praise. Because it says it right there. I will praise you, O Lord. But this praise is not an empty praise. It's not just a mindless repetition of truisms. But rather, praise is always a response to God's work. It's praise based on what God has done. Or on who God is. And here Isaiah picks up on two distinct but very closely connected aspects of God's work. And that is that God has turned away His wrath. And that God has become our salvation. So the first one, we read in chapter 1, Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Well, this is surely a reason for praise, isn't it? This is a most profound mystery that we cannot understand, that God, our former enemy, who stood against us because of our sins and our rebellion, and who indeed had to stand against us because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our corruption, no longer stands against us, but rather stands for us. He has turned away His anger. And He's not angry with us. He comforts us. Let's think about that for a moment. It's something we need to reflect on in this Christmas time. That God indeed stood 
against us. God was angry and righteously, rightfully angry with us. But Jesus Christ came into this world to turn away his wrath. The son of David came into this world really to bear his wrath so that the wrath of God against sin was turned from us to Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, his eternal son, the one whom he loved, the one who was born in a manger so long ago. And so the result of Jesus Christ coming into this world and bearing God's wrath on the cross, this turning aside of God's wrath, is comfort. It's comfort for us. It's the sort of comfort I would imagine that a soldier would feel. After he's all alone in the field of battle, and he sees a lineup of tanks and artillery coming straight his way. It'd be the comfort of realizing that that line of tanks and artillery is not your enemy but is rather your ally and your friend. They don't stand for they don't stand against you. They're not going to destroy you. They stand for you. That would be comfort. And so this becomes the chorus of praise for all who have been comforted by the knowledge of God's goodwill. I will praise you God because you're not angry with me. Instead you comfort me. You comfort me in all my troubles because I know that I belong to that savior. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, the Messiah, who paid for my sins and turned away your anger. And so the reality that God has atoned for our sins in Jesus Christ, who comforts us instead of being angry with us, gives way to the confession, indeed, as Isaiah says, that God is my salvation. Indeed, when God becomes flesh in order to give his life as a ransom for many, no words could be more profoundly true than those. When God becomes man and gives his life as a ransom for us, God is our salvation. Now, people will often speak about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and try to understand how that works People will speak about the objectivity of the work of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, and then how are we supposed to respond and how does that work? Well, let's take notice of what Isaiah says here. He says, God is my salvation. That is totally comprehensive. God gives it. God secures it. God accomplishes it. God carries us in it. God reveals it to us. He promises it. He fulfills it. It's all God. God is our salvation. Of course, the Apostle Paul wouldn't let us forget that salvation is only by faith alone. But even this faith is simply grasping that Jesus Christ has done everything for us. Faith is grasping. Faith is coming to an understanding that God is my salvation. And this fact becomes the basis for that quotation that we see in our text from Exodus 15. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. If you were to turn to Exodus 15, you would see that these words are part of the song of Moses. That he and all Israel sang after they saw the people of Egypt being destroyed in the Red Sea. 
Now, it would have been clear to the Israelites at that moment, right before their eyes, as God wiped away their enemies, and as they stood safe on the shores through no effort of their own, that God is their salvation. And that's the sense that we should understand the salvation of God too, that it's a historical, that it's a profoundly real thing, that it's a thing that we can look at and see before our eyes. It's something that God has done. It's the result of God's actions for His people throughout history. For the Israelites, it was the Exodus. For King David, it was deliverance from his enemies. For us, it's the work of Christ. And for the church in Advent, it's the ongoing work of God through His Word and Spirit. As long as we walk in this world, brothers and sisters, God is our salvation. When we overcome trials and temptations, God is our salvation. When we experience His return and the complete victory, God is our salvation. Well, actually, if you're paying attention, you'll see that I've gotten ahead of myself here. You'll see that the words in verse 2 are not quite what I've said. God is our salvation, but it's personal. God is my salvation. And we need to take note of that, especially because some of us, we react allergically against any idea, any talk about individualism. We don't like to hear the words me and my in, in any sort of hymn or song of praise. And there's a number of authors today that would say God's salvation is not about individual people. It's all about the church. It's all about a body. God isn't even talking about individuals at all. Well, again, we need to listen to what Isaiah says. He addresses the individual. He says, in that day, you, singular, will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. This work of God in Jesus Christ is a profoundly individual one. It's one that we all individually must embrace and which we all individually must sing God's praises for. It is a matter between us and God, but we are like a chorus of God's praise. And without everyone singing this chorus, our song wouldn't amount to much. But it's only when our voices together blend together, each of us singing our praise to God, that we form the chorus of God's praise and that our voices blend in, in praise to God for what He's done as a great choir of all His works and deeds. And so that brings us then to the second point, the source of this song. You'll see that in verse 3, the me and my of the first two verses give way, well, it's actually not that obvious to see in verse 3, with joy you, that's a now a you plural, use guys, you all, y'all, will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's talking about us, the church of God. And these words, even though we move from the singular to the plural, we move from me and my to us and we, 
These words are still closely connected with what's in verses 1 and 2. In fact, you could imagine that these words of verses 1 and 2 are the song that the person sings as they draw water from the wells of salvation. That the song of verse 1 and 2 is the expression of joy that the believer has in the salvation that God has given them. I say that because that word for joy is a word that emphasizes the expression of joy. It's talking about making happy and joyful noises. As someone who's so filled with joy that they can't help but express it. And indeed, when you realize that God is your salvation, then you're filled with joy. Some of us need to be reminded of this now and again because we tend to be pessimistic. We're not used to expressing joy. The idea of singing a song of praise with gusto and with heart doesn't appeal to us. But joy is something that needs to be expressed because of the nature of what it is and because we express it to our God in heaven and indeed to the whole world. So we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes. But there's also another thing that's going on here with this idea about drawing water from the well with joy. And that's something that we ought not to miss. And that has to do with the situation that you're in when you draw water. The point is this, that you draw water from a well when you're thirsty. You draw water when you need water. It's not just right there for you. You have to draw it up. And that's important to realize that this is a song of praise. But it's not a song of praise of someone who has everything at at hand, who has all their needs fulfilled right now. But it's a song of praise for someone who knows where to get it. Someone who knows where that source of joy is, that it's in the wells of salvation that God provides. The point is this, that not everything is going to go smoothly in life. You'll have times of great rejoicing and celebration as Many of us will have in this Christmas time. But we'll also have times of difficulty and trial, times of thirsting, times of need. But the redeemed of the Lord, even when they face these difficulties, they have a rich source of refreshment and life. They have deep wells of salvation that never run dry. We have the life-giving Holy Spirit who fills us up with His Word. We draw from the rich wells of God's salvation and we're filled with joy. Our mouths fill with laughter and our lips begin to form that song of praise to God. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Do we not realize the rich source of life that we draw from, even in the face of difficulties? It's not true that we will never feel thirsty, that we will never feel need in this life. But it is true that we will never be parched, that we will never be cut off from salvation and from the joy that it brings as long as we continue to drink from God's overflowing fountain of grace, from the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We can be sure that this salvation is talking about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember the preceding chapter, chapter 11, made that clear. 
And the rest of, of God's revelation, the rest of the Bible makes that abundantly clear to us as well. That salvation is all about Christmas. That Christ came into this world to bring salvation to men and women of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Salvation is exclusively and profoundly in Christ. Is that not why our Lord Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or why Peter said that salvation is found in no one else because there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And he says later that the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. Of course, you probably know all this. But we need to realize that when we're talking about drawing waters from the wells of salvation, we're talking about drawing life from the well of Jesus Christ. The two are one. It's the same thing. And then having that perspective gives us a wider scope of of that great salvation that we do draw from. Indeed, as the angel declared when, when our Lord appeared in this world, it is good news of great joy for all men. This salvation is huge. Now it is deeply and profoundly about you. It's about you, the individual believer, moving from death to life, moving from God's anger to God's mercy and grace and delight. Let's not forget that. But in the wider scheme of things, it's about God's mercy and grace spreading from the Jews to the Gentiles. It's about the message of the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ going to all people of all tribes, tongues, and nations all over the world. And in the wider scheme of things, it's about God's salvation extending to this material world as well. It's about creation being renewed and refreshed after so long of groaning under the curse of sin. It's about the reunion of heaven and earth after the fall into sin forced their separation. It's about the redeemed of the Lord living with God in complete righteousness, joy, and peace. And it's all because of Jesus Christ and what He's done. That's the salvation that we're talking about. That's the well from which we can draw this life. That's the deep and unquenchable source of joy for us. And now if the knowledge of that salvation, that mighty work that God has done does not cause you to express joy, if that does not cause joy to well up in your heart, well then, quite frankly, I don't know what will. Because that is good news. That's the best news that we can imagine. But it's true, isn't it? That we're not always bursting with joy. We're not always joining that chorus, singing God's praises when they erupt in praise of God. But we should. We should be. We should be constantly singing God's praises, singing about His great and awesome works, 
We should be exhorting our friends, our family, our loved ones, our neighbors to give praise to God as well. And so we come to the third point, the exhortation to this praise. And so it's after considering the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that the church exhorts each other to praise. And this is an important thing to remember. Just as joy needs to be expressed, so we also need to exhort each other to that praise. Not just in the context of church, in the fellowship hall afterwards, not just in the context of our Bible studies that we go to, but in all aspects of life, in all parts of our life, with all people in our life. We need to learn how to have the name of God on our lips, how to speak of His glory and honor, how to express our joy clearly, how to praise Him openly. It's not to our embarrassment that we get to praise God, but rather it's our privilege and our great calling. But this speaking about and praising God, it's not only a private thing, it's not only something we do just with our inner circle of friends and family, it's also a public thing. Look at what verse 4 says. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Verse 5, let this be known to the whole world. God is the king who has brought salvation for this whole world. A salvation that will finally, in the end, encompass the whole world. And so the whole world ought to hear this message. This message of salvation and joy. This message of the true meaning of Christmas. And so at this time of year, it's good to remember the missionaries and the evangelists and those who are bringing this message to the whole world, this message of Christmas. Remember them in your prayers. Remember them in your giving. Remember what they are doing, that they are proclaiming this message to the whole world. But it's also something to be involved with ourselves, to tell it to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family. Well, what will we say? Well, verse 4 again. Make known among the nations what he has done. Well, tell them what God has done. Well, tell them about Christmas. And tell them that God had promised it a long time before it happened. Well, tell them about what Christ accomplished after he came to this earth. Tell them that he died and rose again victorious over death. And that he ascended into heaven. And that he's still at work and that he's going to return one day. We'll tell them that God's name is exalted. You and I can't change that fact. They can't change that fact. God is glorious. God is the God of salvation. God is exalted. All we can do is to witness to that wonderful reality. And then, by the grace of God, some will believe it. They'll believe that God has turned His wrath from them. That He's done all that's necessary for their salvation. And they'll come to know that most profound truth, that God is exalted. And then, to the glory of God on high, they'll join that chorus. They'll join that song of praise as they lift up their voices in praise 
of the Almighty God of heaven and earth. And it's all grounded in Jesus Christ. It's all profoundly Christmassy. Our songs of joy, the great chorus of believers is, is grounded in what happened on Christmas. That 2,000 and some odd years ago, God became a man. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He lived with us for 33 years and then died only to rise again by the power of God and to the glory of God. And He ascended into heaven. And He continues to work today by His Holy Spirit. He works salvation before our very eyes. And He promises to come back on the last day. Great is the Holy One of Israel among us. Great is the salvation that He has won. Great is the work that He has accomplished. Great is the work of God in His church. Great is the power of God in this world. Great is our joy because of what He's done for us. And great is the chorus in response to the salvation that He has won. Shout aloud. Sing for joy, O people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel, the Son of David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, among you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.